Well, tonight we return to our series on stewardship. And we've talked about stewarding our health. We've talked about stewarding our devotions, our finances, our career. And tonight we're going to add one more to the list. Friendship. And this really begs the question, what kind of a friend are you? And medium.com gives us some categories. So let's go through those. Category number one, the first friend. So this is the first real friendship you probably ever had. Maybe a neighbor, a family friend, someone else you played in the sandbox with, someone you grew up with, the first friend. Number two, the fair weather friend. The type of friend that's around for all the good things in life, the happy times, the celebrations, but when difficulties come, they're nowhere to be seen. Where'd they go? Okay, number three, the fake friend. The fake friend. This is a pretty obvious one, right? The type of friend that is a friend by name only, but there's no real evidence to support their claim. The next one, the fun friend. The fun friend. This is the friend that plans all the parties and the outings and the trips. They just want to have fun. But they don't want to get bogged down with the more serious aspects in life. Number five, the for now friend. This is the friend that is circumstantial at best. But time with them is limited and, of course, based on circumstance. Number six, the fickle friend. This is the kind of friendship where you you never really know where you're at with this, this person. One moment, you're liked by them, and the next moment, they're mad at you. You just can't figure it out. Number seven, the flaky friend. The flaky friend. This is the friend that you make plans with, and you put it on the calendar, and they back out. They don't show up. They have something else to do. They're flaky at best. And look, I really hope that most of these don't apply to anyone in this room. And if they do, then you've come to the right night. (laughs) Um, Our culture is obsessed with the concept of friendship. Friendships are the central theme of blogs, of hit TV shows, of movies, of songs, of books. And the Social media giant Facebook hosts nearly 3 billion users out of 8 billion people worldwide on its platform. And it's centered around the premise that you can amass a collection of quote-unquote friends. But with all the focus on friendship and with all these social media platforms at our fingertips, it seems that in this generation when friendships should be the deepest, when they should be the most meaningful, uh, they're really not. According to a recent survey by the Survey Center on American Life, nearly half of all Americans age 18 and up reported having fewer than three close friends. 13% reported having 10 or more close friends. 12% claimed to have no friends at all. And that's here in America, a country of 336 million people. 
Economist Bryce Ward recently stated that by 2019, the average American was spending four hours per week with friends. That's a 37% decline from just five years ago. 37%. So as, as we come out of the grip of COVID lockdowns, it's clear there really was a far greater ep- epidemic growing in our nation and our world. Loneliness and isolation. We live in a time when we can literally have thousands of friends on Facebook, Twitter, followers, and still feel like the loneliest people alive. Social media offers the promise of relationship, but oftentimes, what does it deliver? Emptiness. Why? Because we were meant for so much more. More than pixels, more than profile pages. We've been replaced. We've replaced the personal with the impersonal. The intentional with the vain and the shallow. We've cloistered ourselves behind computer screens when we should have been inviting people into our homes and into our hearts. We've made fellowship. We were made for fellowship. We were made for companionship. We were made for friendship. And this is nothing new. Before human life, the Godhead manifested perfect companionship with one another. The Father, the Son, the Son with the Spirit, the Spirit with the Father. The ache of loneliness looms heavy upon the human heart because it's foreign to every fiber of our created beings. God did not create us to be alone or he wouldn't have walked with Adam and Eve. He wouldn't have said it's not good for man to be alone. And I know that's the context of that is marriage, but there is an element of companionship built into that that goes beyond marriage. He created us to share our lives with him and with each other. If I had to guess, I would imagine that there are those of you, even in this room, who lack fellowship, who lack friendship. Even in a church of 8,000, if that's you, I want you to leave tonight encouraged, motivated, challenged in your pursuit of godly friendships. You're not meant to navigate this life alone. You're not meant to be a lone ranger in the Christian life. You're not meant for isolation. Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Instead, God formed a body, a fellowship, a community of friends united in the person and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So even the world, to a degree, understands this. Britannica defines friendship as such, a state of enduring affection, esteem, intimacy, and trust between two people characterized by being didactic, which means it's active. It's not passive in nature. It's reciprocated 
meaning that it's not one-sided, it's two-sided, it's not obligatory, meaning it's not forced, but welcomed. It's not egalitarian, meaning there isn't some sort of power structure, but there's a certain level of equality, and it's centered around companionship, around shared activity. So even the world recognizes the need and the ache of the human heart for a shared life experience. But the world, worldly wisdom won't satisfy, will it? What then does God say about stewarding friendship? He is, in fact, the author of it. So tonight I want to give you three simple fundamentals of stewarding biblical friendship. Three simple fundamentals of stewarding biblical friendship. And I want us to see a high-level view of biblical friendship that will aid us in our pursuit of genuine Christian community. So let's begin with number one, friendship evaded. Friendship evaded. You know, not all friends are worth, friendships are worth cultivating. Not all friendships are worth pursuing. In fact, many are worth avoiding altogether. In the lesser sense, they waste our time. They serve as a distraction. But in a greater sense, they can ruin a believer's character, their reputation, their life. Here's how. Subpoint A, ungodly friendships corrupt godly thinking. Ungodly friendships corrupt godly thinking. The most vulnerable and influential component we possess is our minds. The mind is the center of our thought, our intellect, our understanding, and knowledge. It's the command center of our our being. And in the pre-fall garden, Satan didn't attack Eve outright. He appealed to her thinking by sowing seeds of doubt and deceit about God's very word. In Psalm 1, we read this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So here we see the progression of intellectual coercion. First, the man finds himself walking in the counsel of the wicked. The word for counsel meaning advice, meaning purpose. The man has been enticed and pulled into an alignment with fools through deceptive instruction, through ill-purposed pursuits, and then the progression continues from there. He stands in the way of sinners. The man now finds himself standing with fools. He is further taken in by their cunning deceits. His guard is down. He's fully engaged in their path of foolishness. And lastly, we find our man sitting in the seat of scoffers. His deception is complete. He's seated. He's at rest with scoffers, with mockers, Deceivers, those who deride, those full of pride, self-centered boasting. 
He's veered from the path of truth. He has stopped meditating on God's word day and night. He has replaced the nourishment of the word with the toxic ideologies of the culture and the world. He has opened himself to worldly wisdom and to doctrines of demons. Evade such friends. Those who would would tempt you, those who would pull you, those who would lead you unto ungodly thinking, those who would distort your understanding of God's word, those who would twist God's clear truth. Avoid them at all cost. Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So instead, replace them. Replace such friends with those who delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Psalm 1, verse 2. Choose your friends wisely. Those who will influence you to think rightly, to think biblically. Those who will edify your life with the word and will not tempt you to deviate from it. Point B, ungodly friendships corrupt godly living. Friends aren't only influential in our thought life, but they're also influential in our outer deeds. Remember Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Bad company, what? Ruins good morals. In a sense, you are who you hang around. Hang around corruption and your morals will be corrupted. Bad friends will elicit you to do bad things. They will try to corrupt your convictions. They will take pleasure in seeing the righteous fall. Understand that the friends you sow today will reap a whirlwind of consequences for years to come, whether for good or for evil. James 4.4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We're not called to be companions of the world. For what companionship, what affection, what camaraderie does life have with death, with the righteous, with the unrighteous, light with darkness? So stewarding your friendships isn't just about choosing wise friends, but avoiding those that are foolish, wicked, and worldly. So one such example we can find in 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, becomes the successor to the king, kingdom of Israel. At the time of his succession, he has the opportunity to tap into the wise old man who learned and stood with his father, Solomon. They counsel Rehoboam to lead with a servant's heart and to speak goodness to the people. But verse 8 tells us Rehoboam forsook their counsel and instead, quote, took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. 
They counseled him to rule over the people with an iron fist and harsh speech. Rehoboam spurned the wise counsel of his father's officials and instead listened to the foolishness of childhood friends. And what were the consequences? Irreparable. The people turned on Rehoboam and the kingdom was divided. You now had Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. The type of spouse you will marry, and a life of either joy or heartache to come. Friendships today always have consequences tomorrow. Stewarding your your friendships means evading the ones that are detrimental to our thinking to our morals, and to our spiritual health. So this is not to say that a believer shouldn't have unbelieving friends. Don't get me wrong. But it always begs the question, who is influencing who? Are they influencing me by their worldly ways? Or am I influencing them for the sake of the gospel? So we've seen friendship evaded. Now, number two, friendship esteemed. Friendship esteemed. In our day, good friendships are hard to come by. Uh, There are so few examples of of friendships worthy of respect, worthy of honor, worthy of emulation. Uh, More often than not, friendships are reduced to to me-centeredness, Demands for reciprocation. Excuses to engage in sinful behavior. So it's necessary for us to explore a biblical example of friendship. So again, turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18. And here we find one of the great accounts of friendship in all of the Bible and and really one in all of history. Jonathan and David. Let me give you a little context. A shepherd boy named David, last born son of Jesse of the town of Bethlehem, has just returned from killing the Philistine giant Goliath with merely a stone and a sling. And David brings before Israel's first king, Saul, the little literal head of the slain giant is during this meeting between David and Saul that Jonathan takes notice of David. Jonathan is the firstborn son of nobility and the expected heir of the throne of Israel. And it is likely Jonathan was older than David, but both young men were comparably courageous in battle and strong in the Lord. So let's pick up the story in verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, this is speaking of David, that is, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. 
And verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So it's here that we see one of the first qualities of a godly friendship. That's love. Point A, godly friendships are bound by love. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. This word, this Hebrew word means to bind or to tie. Jonathan must have seen a bit of himself in David. He too had mustered the courage to fight the Philistines in, in an earlier account in chapter 14. And God had also honored his boldness to bring about Israel's deliverance in that occasion. But whatever the reason, whatever it was, Jonathan made a choice. And even more importantly, he made a covenant. He didn't make a flippant, emotional, sentimental decision. He made a pledge. He made a promise to love David. To what degree? It says he loved him as his own soul. And that, re- that statement's repeated twice for emphasis. It-, it magnifies the importance of this covenant of love. And it should sound awfully familiar to us, right? Because essentially it's the second greatest c- great commandment. It's the Old Testament preview of love thy neighbor as what? Thyself. It's selfless. It's not self-centered. It's others-focused. Jonathan made a covenant that day to love David as if David was his own flesh. This is phileo love. This is brotherly love. What do we do for ourselves? We feed ourselves. We clothe ourselves. We take care of ourselves. We drive ourselves. We meet our our own needs. Loving ourselves is the natural, sinful inclination. Loving others is not. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times. Do you love like Jonathan loved David? Despite the age gap, despite the social and class stigma, it didn't matter. Jonathan chose to commit to loving David as brothers and sisters in the Lord ought to, as we're commanded to, as we're expected to. So what does that look like for us? It means committing to love the people in the church. In your Bible study, this one. In your fellowship group in your community group, in your small group, your leaders, 
the new visitor that's sitting next to you. Not for what you can get, but for what you can give. It means loving your spouse. It means loving your children. It means loving your neighbors. Not when it feels good. That's what the world does. But even when it doesn't. Love is a commitment, not a condition. True and godly friends love one another as they love themselves. That's why God placed us into a community to love. And we must. So another aspect of godly friendship from 1 Samuel 18 is this. Godly friendships are anchored by humility. Let's continue in our text from verse 4. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. The quickest way to ruin a friendship is to poison it with pride, right? But Jonathan shows us a, a totally different way. He is the rightful heir to King Saul's throne. But he does the unthinkable here. He surrenders his rope, his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt to David. Of all people, David, a shepherd boy. And in symbolic fashion, he he is surrendering his future right to the throne. He believes God has chosen the next king of Israel. And guess what? It's not him. How would that make you feel? Knowing that your friend was picked for a superior position over you at work or in the church. Maybe a dear friend got married before you. Maybe they have more children than you. Maybe they have a better job. Maybe they have a bigger house. Jealousy and envy can so easily separate friends if we let it. But a heart anchored in humility really allows friendship to weather any storm that life brings. And get this, a true friend celebrates and champions what God is doing in their friend's life. And as the news of David victory, David's victory over Goliath spreads, so does his fame among the people. This is what they cry. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And this only fills King Saul with jealousy. And this day forward would exist a growing animus between him and David. But Saul still understands that David has favor with the Lord. So 
even amidst this brewing animus, uh, he still allows David to command his army. And he even gives David his daughter's hand in marriage. And, but David continues to have success in battle. He continues to show favor with the Lord. And, and this just continues to make Saul fume. And let's pick things up in chapter 19, verse 1. Chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Saul responds to David's success with jealous rage. But Jonathan's response, again, it shocks and surprises. He delighted much. And that leads us into our our next sub-point, that godly friendships are fueled by affection. Biblical friendship doesn't have to be stale, doesn't have to be robotic. It's not meant to be transactional or competitive. If love was Jonathan's action towards David, then delight was his attitude towards David. Jonathan actually enjoys his friend. And and this isn't a small delight. This is a large delight. He delights much. It's an exceeding amount of delight. It wasn't a drag. It wasn't a chore. It was a pleasure. And this echoes what Paul says about the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians Chapter 2, 7 through 8. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Paul had an affection for his sheep. And Jonathan had an affection for his friend. But do we? Do we? Do your friendships reflect a growing fondness for one another? You can't really genuinely love and serve the people that you don't like. Christian friendship must contain affection or really it will just become drudgery. So love, humility, affection. A fourth, godly friendships are measured by loyalty. By loyalty. Let's pick up the narrative where we left off in verse 2. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning, stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David. 
because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. So Jonathan, learning of yet another plot to kill David, seeks to warn his friend. And not only does he warn David, but he also speaks well of David. He defends David to the point of correcting his father, the king, of his own sin. Jonathan's steadfast courage here is bolstered by an incredible loyalty to David. And really an even greater loyalty to God. David is his man because David is God's man. Godly friendships must be built on the bedrock of loyalty or trust will never be established. A loyal friend says what they mean and they do what they say. A loyal friend is there in good times and in bad. A loyal friend is available and timely. A loyal friend has your back and your support. A loyal friend lives to see God's plan revealed in your life. Jonathan did everything in his power to make sure of his friend's success. And that's exactly what a loyal and godly friend does. Godly friendships, point E, godly friendships are encouraged by service. So David has now fled from Saul after another attempt to kill him, and he meets with Jonathan in in secret, and he's just trying to get answers. Chapter 20, verse 1 says, Then David fled from Naioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? You can see the desperation, can't you? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. This is Jonathan speaking. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David bowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me 
and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David's in a low moment. He's he's discouraged. He's running for his life, and he he can't figure out why is this Saul trying to kill me? What did I do? How did what sin did I commit? And he's looking death straight in the face. But Jonathan knows exactly how to encourage his friend. He serves him. And what's the best way that Jonathan can serve David? With knowledge. Verse 2. My father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. Jonathan has access to the king's ear. And he knows when his father's going to act. And he's then willing to disclose confidential details for the well-being of his friend. And Israel's future king. The communication of, of such knowledge culminates in a famous incident. David wants to know if Saul's heart towards him has changed. Is he welcome back into the palace? Or is he merely a fugitive on the run forever? And Jonathan intends to find out. And once he does, he devises a special signal uh, utilizing arrows. Let's look at chapter 20, verse 19. On the third day, go, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at, at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are behind, beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. So Jonathan plans to use his skills and his experience on the battlefield in order to help his friend. And it's rather simple, really. Godly friendships are centered around serving one another. It doesn't have to be a life and death situation either. True friends are about discovering a need and meeting it. An example of that uh, recently for me, uh, a few years ago, I I met a man who was uh, sitting alone in evening service here at the church, and I went up and talked to him after the service and engaged him. And I found out that night that uh, no one had ever come up to him in four years of being at evening service until that night. And I encouraged him to come on Sunday mornings and to check out a fellowship group and to get plugged into the church so that he could find ways of utilizing his giftedness, specifically in kind of the graphic arts area, for the edification of the church. 
in the body. And, and he even visited foundation on one occurrence. And, but then we lost track. And I never saw him again really until a few weeks ago. And he approached me at the, the family fair that we had in October. And he mentioned how impactful our conversation had been and that he was now serving on a team, uh, a large media-related project, uh, benefiting not only our church, but could potentially impact uh, far-reaching our own church to our nation, even worldwide. And I didn't bring up that story to merely pat myself on the back. I brought it up because every time you sit down in foundation, every time you sit down in a fellowship group or in the worship center or in your, at your community group or, or wherever, you have a chance to make a friend. You have a chance to love and serve someone in a way that has impact that you can't even imagine. You can serve them with your time. You can serve them with your kindness. You can serve them with your knowledge. You can serve them with your skills. Don't waste that opportunity because you're only at church to meet others that meet your own social agenda. Love, humility, affection, loyalty, Service. One final lesson from the friendship of Jonathan and David. Godly friendships are rooted in the Lord. Jonathan returns to Saul and discovers that Saul, he hasn't relented of his anger. He hasn't relented of his hatred. In fact, he's he's doubled down. At one point, lashing out at Jonathan both verbally and and even to the point of hurling a spear at, at him. But uh, Saul's heart is is set. He won't stop at nothing until David is dead. So Jonathan returns to the place that David is hiding with, with the young boy, as he has promised. And he sends the boy near the place where David is hiding, and he shoots his arrows behind the boy and signaling to David that Saul has indeed chosen hatred over reconciliation. David's now a man on the run. And the final scene between these two great friends is really a touching one. They kiss and they weep. And here are their final words together. Verse 42 of that same chapter. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. They recognize that God is the singular foundation of their friendship. They are united in God's purpose and God's plans for each other's lives. 
and as must we be, right? United and at peace through the power of the gospel, the power of the word of God, and in the Lord. Ours is a fellowship. Ours is a friendship rooted in our common salvation. No other friendships will last. But ours is a friendship flowing into eternity. And may that eternal bond really be the glue that binds us together. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, we learn that Jonathan is struck down by the Philistines during battle. And upon learning of his friend's death, David utters these words in 2 Samuel chapter 1, 25 through 26. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. David's friendship with Jonathan was so special, so committed, so untypical that that to David it surpassed even that of his own wives. And more could be said about of why that was, but the point is the clear testimony of extravagant and loyal love expressed towards David's dearest friend. What will your friends testify about your love? That it was weak? That it was fickle? Or that it was loyal? That it was extravagant? Committed? Faithful? So just to sum things up, stewarding our friendships means pursuing such godly friendships that are bound by love, anchored by humility, fueled by affection, measured by loyalty, encouraged by service, and rooted in the Lord. So we began with uh, friendship evaded. We followed that by friendship esteemed. And lastly, I want us to look at friendship embodied. Friendship embodied. And a sermon on friendship wouldn't be appropriate without acknowledging the author of friendship, creator God. And as I alluded to that earlier, it was God who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. It was, it was God who initiated purposeful, intentional relationship. It was God who first befriended man. Isaiah 41.8 says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. God called Abraham his friend. Just think about that. God calls man 
his friend. And yet, what was the greatest expression of that friendship? Incarnation. Incarnation. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 2,000 years ago, friendship came down, embodied in a babe born in the manger. Proverbs 18.24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. What relationship could possibly be closer than blood and kin? There's only one, Jesus. He is the friend that cannot disappoint. He cannot fail. And endless works could be written on the qualities of Jesus as a friend. But let's hone in on just a few as we, as we wrap things up. How does Jesus exemplify friendship? Well, first, he, he chooses his friends. He spent an entire night in prayer before choosing his 12 disciples. The men that will eat with him, sleep with him, minister with him for 24 hours a day for the next three years. Are we as devoted to choosing our friends with such thoughtfulness, wisdom, prayer? Jesus corrects his friends. After foretelling his death and resurrection in Matthew 16, Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus responds with a stern correction. He says, but he turned and said to Peter, get me behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is reminiscent of Proverbs 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So a true friend is one who's willing to point out our sins and our failings. They want to see us grow and mature. Peter was acting like Satan. And he needed to feel the crushing blow of conviction that would come from the very one whom loved his soul. An enemy flatters, but a true friend lovingly wounds. What else does Jesus do for his friends? He He serves his friends, John chapter 13. On the eve of his arrest, the text states, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And compelled by such love, he does really the unthinkable. 
He removes his outer, outer garments. He ties a towel around his waist. And he proceeds to wash the filthy feet of his disciples. He lowers himself to the place of a common house slave. He has chosen a place of servitude over superiority. And in Matthew 20, he responds to James and John. Now, they're fighting over who will sit on his right hand and who will sit on his left at the coming of his kingdom. And, but this is what he's, how he responds. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. A true friend serves. Even when he has the right not to. Jesus teaches his friends. John 15, 15 says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus came to teach and instruct his friends. What did he teach them? All that I have heard from the Father. He teaches them the very word of God. If you want to be a friend like Jesus, then find friends who edify and encourage each other in the word. If you want to be a friend of Jesus, You must be friends through the power of God's truth, working in each other's lives through mutual encouragement and edification. That's exactly why we thought up community groups so long ago. We know that everyone here has innumerable social avenues to choose from, events, clubs, But the idea isn't to add just another place where we're just add another social event to our calendars. The point is to foster godly friendships centered around the truth that transforms, that edifies, that encourages, that convicts, that challenges, that gives hope. The truth is the glue that holds all godly friendships together. One final aspect of Jesus and his friends. Jesus sacrifices for his friends. During the Upper Room Discourse on the eve of his betrayal, his arrest, And his murder, Jesus would tell his disciples this. John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. 
This is the pinnacle of friendship. Self-sacrifice. Jesus is going to lay down his, his own life for his friends. And remarkably, 300 years before Christ even spoke these words, Aristotle wrote this, but it is also true that the virtuous man's conduct is often guided by the interest of his friends and of his country, and that he will, if necessary, lay down his life in their behalf. So even the ancient philosophers realized that true, genuine friendship is built upon a foundation of self, Sacrifice. Foundation that Jesus may not specifically be calling you to lay down your life. But he is calling you to sacrifice yourself for your friends. Sacrifice your time. Building intentional relationships that edify, that encourage, that build up through the reading of Scripture through praying with one another, sacrifice your money, supporting global missions, taking a, a meal to an Ill, Ill friend or someone that just lost their job, sacrifice your spiritual giftedness to teach and to serve and to care for the children in special ministries for a weaker brother or sister in the faith that you want to see mature. Sacrifice your Saturday mornings to evangelize the lost and to make future friends that you will spend eternity together with. And remember this. There is no service without sacrifice. There is no service without sacrifice. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come just to make friends. He came to save them from their sins. He came to rescue them from the wrath to come. He came to cloak them in his own righteousness. He came to grant them eternal life through the shedding of his own blood. There is no salvation without sacrifice. And the only fitting sacrifice was God's lamb, the Lord Jesus, a friend of sinners like you and like me. And that really begs the question, are you Christ's friend? Are you Christ's friend? Has he covered over your sin? Has he cleansed you of all your unrighteousness? He can. And all you have to do is ask. Ask him to save you. Ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to be your friend forever. And how can you know that you truly are Christ's friend? Because you can. John 
chapter 15, verse 14. You are my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Friendship with Christ comes at a cost. You must deny yourself and follow him. May Jesus be our greatest friend. And may we be a friend like Jesus. Medium.com had one final type of friends, and I thought I would save it till last. Category number eight, the forever friend. This is the type of friend that will stand by your side through thick and thin, that is committed, loyal, dependable, selfless, and sacrificial. And I think what Medium.com failed to realize is that the only person that could ever fit that description is Jesus Christ. He's the friend you can't evade. He's the friend that you must esteem. And he embodies the kind of friend that we all must be. And one day, he will return to take with him his friends home to be with him forever in heaven. And such a sweet hope is uh, beautifully expressed in, in a hymn by Joseph C. Ludgate that he wrote in 1898. And I just want to read you those lyrics in closing. A friend of Jesus, oh, what bliss that one so weak as I should ever have a friend like this to lead me to the sky. A friend when other friendships cease, a friend when others fail, a friend who gives me joy and peace, a friend when foes assail, a friend when sickness lays me low, a friend when death draws near, a friend as through the veil I go, a friend to help and cheer, a friend when life's short race is o'er, a friend when earth has passed, a friend to meet on heaven's shore, a friend when home at last. Friendship with Jesus, fellowship divine. Oh, what blessed, sweet communion. Jesus is a friend of mine. Such remarkable truth, Jesus, that you are a friend of sinners, but you don't leave them in their sin. You gave your life. You sacrificed yourself that such sinners would become saints, that such sinners would become saved, that such sinners would be with you forever. Just remarkable to think that we can be friends with God 
that God makes it possible by way of the precious lamb who gave his life, that we would know him, love him, and serve him and each other forever. Thank you that we are a fellowship and a community that loves Christ, that loves each other. And may we do so all the more until the day when we will see Christ face to face and we will be with our forever friend in his eternal kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.